You are listening to The Archivist, a true crime podcast. I'm Jana, and I am dedicated to preserving the details of lives that are lost and the crimes committed. Welcome to The Archivist. On the last episode of The Archivist, we talked about a Black Widow killer. This is a woman who murders her mate for financial gain. And it got me wondering if there was a male equivalent to the Black Widow. Men killing women, unfortunately, is not hard to come by as far as stories go. And according to DomesticShelters.org, one out of five murder victims in the U.S. were killed by an intimate partner. And women account for two out of three murder victims killed by an intimate partner. A blue beard killer is a man who marries and kills one wife after another. And this name was derived from a French folktale, which first appeared as a story written by Charles Perrault in 1697. So this story, I'm going to give you a very quick overview. This story is a wealthy and powerful nobleman. He has married several times and each time to a very beautiful woman, but each of his wives mysteriously vanish. After the death of his beautiful sixth wife, he hosts this lavish banquet for his neighbors and he asks to marry one of their daughters. After much, uh, I don't know, negotiating, the youngest daughter agrees to marry him and moves into his castle or palace. Almost as soon as they are married and settled, he announces he must leave the country for business. So he gives his new wife the keys to all of the doors in the castle and tells her she can go into any room except the room that is an underground chamber. He warns her if she enters the room, she will suffer his wrath. Once he is gone, she invites her sisters, her cousins, and some friends to have a party. While this party is going on, her curiosity gets the best of her. And I don't know if you're anything like me, but if you tell me I can't go in one room in the house, I'm going to do everything I can to go in that room. And apparently this wife is the same way. So she goes down into the cellar room and immediately regrets her decision. She's horrified by what she finds. The room is flooded with blood and there are several murdered bodies hanging from hooks that are on the walls. After seeing this horrific sight, she drops the key into the blood on the floor and runs away. Later, before her husband returns, she tries to wash the blood from the key but can't. In some of the versions of this story, I saw that it's a magic key that will not allow it to be cleaned, but I don't it wasn't in every version. So anyway, when Bluebeard returns and he sees that his wife has opened the door that he had told her not to, he flies into a rage. And of course, he is a horrible person and he tries to beat her to death. But before he can deliver the death blow, her brothers and sister arrive and they kill Bluebeard. End of story. And this is where we have the inspiration for the nickname Bluebeard Killer. So I'm going to talk to you today about a man that is called the Bluebird Killer of West Virginia. In 1927, a society was formed called Detroit American Friendship Society. And this is 
an old-timey tender. So the society offered memberships for an annual fee, $4.95 for men and $1.95 for women. With a paid membership, the society would send a list of available matches. This organization grew quickly into a thriving business and continued to thrive even after the Great Depression began. In 1931, a profile was added to the list that read, Wealthy Widower, worth $150,000, which the 2022 equivalent would be $2,751,335. So that went on to say, worth $150,000, working as a civil engineer, own a beautiful 10-room brick home, completely furnished with everything that would make a good woman happy. My wife would have her own car and plenty of spending money, would have nothing to do but enjoy herself. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a dream come true. And of course, this profile caught the eye of Asta Eicher. Asta was a 50-year-old widow from Chicago, and her husband had died eight years prior and left her with three children. They were Greta, 14, Harry, 12, and Annabelle, 9. After her husband's passing, Asta had struggled with finances and taking care of her children. So this profile of a wealthy man with a furnished home was a dream come true, and she immediately struck up a correspondence with him. In July of 1931, Asta had shared excitement with her friends and told them about her budding romance. When she finally told them about her secret, she only could tell them her boyfriend's name, which was Mr. Pearson. By the end of July, Asta asked her boarder, William O'Boyle, to find a new place to live. She told him that Mr. Pearson would be moving in soon. O'Boyle did not like the man that he had seen hanging around Mrs. Iker. He described him as pudgy, pig-faced little man. And I'm like, oh my goodness, ouch. Uh, So in August, O'Boyle returned to the Iker home to pick up some tools he had left behind. The problem was Mrs. Iker and her children were nowhere to be found. Mr. Pearson was the only person who appeared to be in the home. And he told O'Boyle that Mrs. Iker and the kids had moved and had asked him to take care of the house. O'Boyle does not like this story and he goes immediately to the police and he explains that the Ikers were missing and Pearson was selling everything. And I'm so sorry if you just heard my dog bark. (laughs) The police went to the Iker home and questioned the man. He told them his name was Cornelius O. Pearson of the Fairmont Hotel, Fairmont, West Virginia. And he then also told the police that the Iker family had moved to Colorado and asked him to stay behind to settle their affairs. He had a letter that looked like it was written by Asta, and it said that Pearson had paid uh, her property taxes and mortgage and asked him to get the house ready for renters. When they asked him where in Colorado, Pearson could not say, and everyone's antennas went up. And kudos to these police, because they decided there should be further investigation. Because, you know, when something seems weird, you should check it out. And good thing that these police did check it out because no one in Fairmont, West Virginia knew a man named Cornelius Pearson. Anyone surprised? 
Unfortunately, in 1931, there is not a lot that the police can do. Once they go to Fairmont and nobody knows who Cornelius Pearson is, they're done. There's no paper trail. But they catch a lucky break. O'Boyle has a box of letters between Asta and Pearson that he had taken out of the Iker home. These letters lead police to a small town in West Virginia called Quiet Dell, which sounds like a really lovely place to live. There, they find a small property where a man named Harry Powers lived with his wife, Luella. Harry and Luella have been married for four years. Pearson Powers, as I'm going to call him right now, insisted the Iker family had gone west to Colorado. But neighbors and friends of Mrs. Iker told police that Pearson had told them she had gone to Europe. So Pearson tried denying knowing where the Iker family went, but he did get tripped up during the questioning and he accidentally revealed that the family had traveled with him to West Virginia. And I'm so happy to be telling you a story where the detectives were on the ball because they were not buying this man's stories. They were conflicting. And so they continued to look around this property in Quiet Dell. They were told by neighbors that Powers had recently built a new shed or garage on the properties about a month before. When police enter the new building, they found jewelry and clothing that had belonged to Asta Eicher. And then a 15-year-old neighbor tells police that Pearson Powers had hired him to dig a ditch on his property and all the alarm bells and red flags and cannonballs are going off right now. So police continue to search the property. On August 28th, police dug up four bodies wrapped in burlap sacks and buried in a shallow grave. Sadly, these are the bodies of the four members of the Iker family. The next day, another body is found in the garage, and this is the body of Dorothy Lemke. Dorothy was a 50-year-old divorcee from Northborough, Massachusetts, and she had been missing since July. So I don't have much information about her, but Pearson Powers had persuaded her to withdraw $4,000 from her bank, and he promised to marry her in Iowa. However, her belongings were packed up and shipped to Cornelius Pearson of Fairmont, West Virginia, and she must have not noticed that this was inconsistent, and unfortunately, she did disappear with no explanation. The police found letters and pictures in the trunk of Power's car, from more than 100 widows and spencers. And these letters went back as far as a decade. The search of the property also yielded a camera with a roll of film in it that had pictures of Lemke and Powers together. Police found crime scenes in four different rooms that were underneath the newly built garage. So like in cellar rooms. And they found bloody clothing, hair, a burned bank book, and small, a small bloody footprint. Powers was then persuaded <laughs> to confess and told the police that after promising to marry Asta Eicher, he had driven to Chicago and brought her and her children back to West Virginia. When they arrived at the small farm in Quiet Dell, he locked them up in the garage for a few days. After a couple days, he took them to a room inside his house and he hung them. 
And he did beat Harry Eicher to death with a hammer when the boy began screaming as his mother and two sisters were murdered. I'm disgusted by this man. Dorothy Lemke arrived at the house in Quiet Dell the day after these murders, and Powers took her to the garage and locked her up, later hanging her the same as he did the Iker family. Now, I may need to remind you that he's also married at this time. I can't find any information on Luella. I don't know if she just wasn't around while all of this was happening, but there is literally no mention of her in the newspaper articles. So I'm not sure if she knew about this or was involved or what. Police continued to search and dig around the farm property for several days, but they did not find any more bodies. But they do not think that these are his only murders. They grilled him at length, trying to get him to confess to more, but he would just shrug his shoulders and say, I don't know. Several women did come forward with stories about how Powers had tried to woo them, including one woman who had a planned wedding day on the day that he was arrested. So most of the women said that they would empty their bank accounts at his request in preparation to marry, and then they would move to Pearson's home once they were married. But once he had pocketed their cash, he would disappear. Police saw this as a pattern in the Lemke and Iker accounts also. So I bet you're wondering, who is the real man? Cornelius Pearson or Harry Powers? Our evil and sadistic Bluebeard killer is a 39-year-old man named Herman Drenth. Drenth was originally born in Beerta, Holland, on November 17, 1892. And I fell down a little rabbit hole while I was looking up information. What is the difference between Holland and the Netherlands? Holland is a region of the Netherlands on the western coast. It used to be acceptable to refer to the entire country of Netherlands as Holland, but as of January 2020, that is no longer acceptable. So you can be from the Netherlands and also be from Holland, but you don't have to be from Holland to be from the Netherlands. I hope that clears it up some. So back to Pearson Powers Drenth. His parents were Wilco or William and Yanta Drenth. And in April of 1910, Herman immigrated to the U.S. with a, a boy, another son from a family friend. And these two boys arrive in New York and they state that their final destination is Iowa. In Belmond, Iowa, the two quickly begin working and they find a room to rent from a man named Harry Kemp. Friends described Herman as very smart and they told police he learned English very fast, like faster than anyone they knew. About a year after Herman arrived in the U.S., his parents and sister immigrated. One friend told newspapers that Herman had always been a fat boy, rather short, and he noticed that he was wearing glasses in the photos that were taken by the newspaper reporters, and he said he did always have bad eyes. And he said Harm, which is the Dutch pronunciation of Herman, was pretty smart and learned English quickly. He always caused his folks a lot of worry. He wasn't even at home when his mother and sister died. And I get the feeling that he's not very well liked. After his mother died, his father remarried, and Drenth began telling people that both of his parents were deceased. In 1915, Herman left Iowa and moved to Cumberland, Wisconsin. And from here, we don't have a lot of details of his life until he's caught for murder. 
Harmon Drenth refused to answer questions about the murders and he denied any responsibility. He tried to point the finger at somebody named Charles Rogers and this alleged Rogers was supposedly under surveillance by police according to what Drenth told to reporters. But none of the detectives working on the case had any knowledge of anyone named Rogers. So Drenth then said that he had last seen Iker and her children when they were driving off in Rogers' car headed toward Colorado. Drenth was arrested in September of 1931. After his arrest, he did appear with two black eyes and some bruising that was from, air quotes here, falling down a staircase during his questioning. On September 20th, 1931, a lynch mob had to be doused with water from a fire hose because they were planning to take Drenth. He was then moved to the West Virginia State Penitentiary. I always have trouble with that word. I don't know why. The judge presiding over the trial really anticipated that there would be large crowds. So he had the trial court move to a 1,200-seat opera house in Clarksburg, West Virginia. The trial began on December 7, 1931, and Drenth really just seemed unconcerned about his fate. He sat in the courtroom chewing gum and yawning throughout. And I'm like, that is not a good way to win the jurors to your side. When he took the stand in his own defense, he cried and said his marriage was miserable. But I don't think that he was getting any sympathy. He said that this is the reason that he took to mail order Lonely Hearts organizations. And he denied taking part in the killings. He recanted the confession that he had given to police. But... The prosecution had numerous witnesses testify to the evidence found in the Pearson Powers Drenth home and also to seeing him with the victims with their luggage. You know, he'd been spotted with them. After five days of trial, the jury deliberated for one hour and 50 minutes and they found Herman Drenth guilty of murder and sentenced him to die by hanging. Uh, Once Drenth was taken to the prison, he promised to give a lengthy confession. On March 18th, Pearson Powers Drenth was taken to the gallows. It was customary at that time to allow the prisoners a last statement, and when Drenth was standing on the platform with the noose around his neck, he went into a ridiculous and long-winded story about how two other men were responsible for the death of Dorothy Pressler Lemke. And after he finished, the warden asked him if he had anything else to say, and he said no. Reporters on the scene that day said that he glared out at the audience and he didn't have his glasses on. So one reporter speculated that the leering and glaring were him trying to make out the faces of the people watching. The gallows had a three-lever mechanism and three prison guards were used to pull the levers at the same time. The lever was pulled and Drenth was dropped through the trap door And this way, none of the guards know who actually engaged that trapdoor. After Drenth fell through the trapdoor, two doctors were attending and they came over to check on his body. After 11 minutes, he was pronounced dead. Drenth was convicted of five murders, but an Illinois coroner named T.A. Hoganson 
was convinced that Drenth had murdered a woman in Morris, Illinois. Drenth had never denied traveling to Park Ridge, which is a suburb of Chicago where the Iker family lived, and his car was identified by a rooming house landlord. She said that she had rented a man a garage space for this car, and then she positively identified Drenth as the man that she rented to. The woman said that she had complained to him about a terrible odor coming from the garage, and she asked him about it, and a few days later, after she had questioned him, the body of a woman wrapped in burlap was found beside the highway outside of Morris, Illinois. And the body of this woman was never identified. So the coroner was just convinced that Drenth had something to do with this woman's death. Shockingly, Drenth had remained married throughout his trial and up until his death. But Luella did not claim his body And after a few days, the prison buried him in a potter's field called Tom's Run Valley. And that is the end of our Bluebeard Killer, the male version of a Black Widow. Hope you enjoyed this episode and we will see you next time. The Archivist is a production of Three Sisters Crime Squad.